All right. Well, good evening, everyone. How are we doing tonight? <laughs> Wonderful. I want to welcome those online that are watching at home. Uh, it's good to have you as always. Uh, it's it's dark out there. Getting dark seems earlier, but it's uh, it's always good to have people with us in person. On the way here, I was kind of thinking it's kind of nice. It's cozy. This atmosphere and and, and Bible study. You're all, you you guys are all kind of like family, you know, to me. Kind of a weird backwoods family, but family, you know. But it's uh, happy happy to be here. It's a, it's a it's a pleasure to um to be able to teach. Uh, but um, so Pastor Greg will be. Uh, what I'd like to do is is conclude. Try to. We've got three weeks before we go on kind of a break, and the break will simply be uh, during. Um, for Christmas and for New Year. Those Thursdays happen to fall somewhere in there. So we're going to go another three weeks and we're going to finish up 2 Samuel. And then we're going to take a two-week break. And then Chris Bills will be coming in. He's a uh, member of our church. that He'll be coming in to actually teach a 10-week course on apologetics. And, and if you don't know what that word means, I'm going to let you look it up. That's your homework. But it should be a wonderful class an exciting class. I'm excited about it. In fact, there's a, uh, uh, a little mini conference this weekend down at Calvary Chapel in Port St. Lucie, uh, and Frank Turek is coming in. If anybody knows anything about apologetics, it should be a really great seminar. I think you have to register online, but it um, should be great. So I'm excited about the class coming up that Chris will be teaching. Um, but uh, like I said, I'd like to, uh, there's a, I think there's four chapters left or three in 2 Samuel, and so we're going to try to wrap those up. Um, in the next couple of weeks. I'm excited about doing it. Um, but uh, tonight, before we get started, I, I just want to give you a brief introduction, kind of a, kind of a, I like to do the flyovers as to what's going on tonight in this particular chapter. And this chapter is, we, you always get a different chapter that's, sometimes it's very, it's a narrative and it's just a, a, an account of something that happened. And you try to look and read it and reread it and see what if there's something uh, that is applicable that comes out of that narrative, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes I don't want to apply anything to it, of course, again, that we, that's not there. But the more you read something and you pray over something and you listen to the Holy Spirit and you, you look through uh, um, excellent resources and, and, um, and commentaries that, that extend back to the 1800s, oftentimes you'll see things that uh, those former theologians have seen, and when they all line up, then there's something that comes out that you can go, oh, that's something that's useful. Because a Bible study is a Bible study. It's not necessarily a topical sermon or a, even a verse-by-verse -verse sermon on a Sunday. A Bible study is a little more detailed in, in details, and sometimes there's a, an exhortation that comes out, like a preaching moment, uh, but then sometimes there's really not. We can just learn some things, though, from what history uh, teaches us. And uh, in this particular passage, we're going to uh, learn about uh, things like God's discipline, and we'll learn something about, there's covenantal things in here, which is a, a big word, and, and not everyone knows what that means, but we'll talk about covenant, we'll talk about sin, obviously, and we'll talk about atonement. And they're all, they're all, they're all in this particular chapter. So I think as, as, as you look through this and we dig a little deeper, um, there might be some, some good takeaways tonight. Um, so... Let's just go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started, okay? Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for those who are gathered here tonight. We also thank you for those who are at home online watching. Lord, we ask uh, for your 
um, for the Holy Spirit to uh, expound on uh, the, the passage here, Lord, to, to illuminate the passage for us. Uh, and again, I always seem to remember as we, as we go through these that you, the Holy Spirit that illuminates this text for us today is the same Holy Spirit that was there when it was written. Father, we lean on you heavily for this. Lord, let me get out of the way and let you uh, shine through and that your word uh, is, is prominent over everything that we do tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just to give you some context of where we are um, within this particular chapter, the chapter, if you're taking notes, is uh, there's actually a title in the Bible here, in, in, my, in my, my Bible, it says, David avenges the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites. Um, uh, so uh, David, at this point in his life, was up in his years. Now, some of these, from, from 21, 22, 23, 24, these passages are almost like they're not, what's the term for something that's added on at the end of a book? Like a, not an addendum or a, an, an epilogue, okay. But it kind, of, it kind of, it's not necessarily in chronological order. So this particular chapter falls sometime after David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And um, what was it? And then uh, Shimei's cursing of David. So somewhere in there. So it's not necessarily the last thing that happens in this particular sequence of events, but it is later in David's life. And we'll find out towards the end of the chapter that David is up in his years. He's not what he once was, as Toby Keith would say. Um, so David's up in years. Uh, we know the time frame of the event is not necessarily, it's a little bit out of order within the chapters, but it still is towards the end of his uh, career as a king. Um, this is between now and the end of Samuel, 2 Samuel. This is one of two times where the Lord will continue to discipline Israel. Okay, So that's what we're going to see tonight is the disciplining of Israel. It seems to be an ongoing thing, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there, kind of what we're looking, looking at tonight. So, um, so again, if, if, again, if you're taking notes, there's four major scenes that are going to happen in this chapter. And then there's a, something at the very end, which is almost a preface to the following chapter. But again, you're going to see, uh, if you're taking notes, you want to write down God's discipline. Uh, you'll write down uh, covenant. You'll write down sin. And you'll write down atonement, okay? So those are kind of the four areas we're going to kind of uh, try to hit on tonight as we, as we go through this. So let's go ahead and start by reading. Um, and we're, again, we're in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. We'll start reading in, in, in verse 1. So it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Well, let me just let me just stop right there because this you can almost do an entire sermon on just this first first particular verse. Uh, but the famine, obviously, uh, in times in the past, was a an indicator of God's discipline. Sometimes it was God's judgment on the ungodly, and sometimes for the for for Israel, it was a form of discipline uh, under the uh, Mosaic covenant. And so, when whenever that would occur. I don't know why it took David three years to figure this one out and to inquire of the Lord, but it was a time of discipline. So something happened where God was not pleased, and so this is something that they were in this period of famine. So that's the, the first thing I want to stop and look at. Now, we talk about discipline of the Lord, and, and oftentimes we, we think, well, that's, 
that's just the God of the Old Testament. He was, uh, you know, under that Mosaic covenant was strong, and there were 300 things, uh, blessings you could get for doing good things, and 300 uh, uh, curses you would get for doing bad things. But in, in all reality, discipline, just like we saw here in the Old Testament, uh, where, where God is literally famine, there was no rain, so there was famine in the, and the, the corn wasn't planted, the crops weren't planted, they were not. So discipline that occurred then is still the same, it's still the same God we have now. Now we're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore, we're under the New Covenant. We know that, which is wonderful. But there is still discipline in our lives. We still, if we do something, you know, out of order, out of God, in disorder of God's uh, covenant, or uh, we, we, you know, we go have unconfessed sin, there are times when God does discipline us. And a lot of people kind of buck up against that and go, well, you know, that, that's not God of now. That's we're under the new covenant and everything's hunky-dory. Well, let me take you real quick. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel. And I, I, I hit this chapter, this uh, particular text before in another um, teaching, but let's go to Hebrews real quick. Just go ahead and turn to Hebrews 12, because I, I want to make sure that we all have a clear understanding that discipline was not just of, of the God of wrath of the Old Testament. Discipline still occurs, and this is why it's a good thing. So turn to, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And let's look down at at verse 5, Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verse 5. And let's just read along here. The writer is saying, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Note the word sons, right? It says, My son, do not regard... This is from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, by the way, this passage here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones, the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And you are left. And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So right there, we know that. Discipline from the Lord is often an indicator that we are adopted into His family. We are His children. Let's continue on. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, this is referring to the our, our earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, clearly, um, as believers, when we're disciplined by the Lord, we are to not feel defeated. We are to take heart because that simply is an indicator that we are loved and we are being addressed by our Father who wants to guide us and, and, and sharpen us. And I think that's something to remember as we look at some of these texts where, where these, the children of Israel obviously were being disciplined for something they did or something one of their leaders did. But to this, in this day and age, we still have that and we still have discipline and it's a good thing. So we need to count that uh, as joy knowing who is disciplining us. 
So let's move along here. Let's go back to 2 Samuel here. We're back in, we're still in, we're still in verse 1. And the next sentence here is really important. It says, And David sought the face of the Lord. There are so many times in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel, where David was king, and there are times when he did not seek the face of the Lord, when Saul did not seek the face of the Lord, and things, well, what happened? They went south quickly. Uh, but when, when David or Saul did seek the face of the Lord, did inquire of the Lord, things typically went as, well, they went as the Lord planned either way, but they went well, they went better when, 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 they were, when he was seeking God's face. So in this particular instance, he's seeking out, he's saying, why? He wants to know, he knows that famine, David knows that famine is a, is, they're being disciplined. And he finally, I don't know why it took three years, but he finally seeks the Lord and the Lord answers. It says, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The Gibeonites. So, so what? Paul, Saul put a lot of people to death. He put, he, I mean, he was at war with nearly every nation around him when he was going around defeating people. So the Gibeonites were just another, you know, they were not of Israel. They were heathens. And so what's the big deal? Well, let's kind of move, let's move forward here. So, Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites, here we go, were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, right? So they're still enemies of Israel, they're not of Israel, but why are they still around and what's going on? They're still there. Although the people of Israel, reading here along, had sworn to spare them. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows that story, but if you don't know the story, I think it's important to kind of go back in time, and we're going to figure out who these Gibeonites were and why it was a, a big deal for them to be spared, because obviously Saul didn't spare them, and because he didn't spare them, Israel was under, uh, you know, discipline, right? So, but the problem is we have to go back 400 years. So, so this is Israel right now, whatever, in, during, under David's rule, Israel is being punished or disciplined for something that happened under Saul's reign for breaking a covenant that occurred 400 years prior. So that kind of is a stretch for me. I'm like, well, okay, well, let's, let's go back and see what actually happened in that story. So again, hold your place there if you have a little tab in 2 Samuel, and let's go back to Joshua the book of Joshua, it's right before Judges. It's just before 1 Samuel, actually. I mean, it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so kind of go back a little bit further. So go to Joshua chapter 9. This is just an interesting story, and I, I, I don't remember this, and so I was, it's good to know this and understand this because it informs where we're going to go in chapter 21 and why this was a big deal. So Joshua chapter 9. I'll wait till everybody gets there. And we're going to start kind of right at the beginning. We might skip around a little bit, but I'm just going to read along because I don't think there's ever anything wrong with slowly reading the Bible and really listening to the story, okay? So just kind of enjoy the time. Let's read along and, look, and let's look at the story to figure out who the Gibeonites were and how there was a covenant created that Saul broke and caused famine. 
So chapter one, or chapter nine, verse one, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. This is something prior that, that is occurring because Joshua was renewing, renewing a covenant. They heard of war, obviously. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So all of these tribes and nations were getting ready to make war against Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, hence the Gibeonites, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho, we may remember that, and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went ready, <laughs> they went and made ready provisions and took took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Let's just stop right there. What a joke. They're, they're actually pretending. Let me just kind of just tell you, just I'll give you just a teaser here. The Gibeonites lived about six to seven miles away from where, from where Joshua was. But they pretended, they, 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 they antiqued all of their stuff. They pretended like they had come from a long ways away, like they'd traveled for months or weeks, and, and, and they, they had pre-rotted wineskins and sewn up to make it appear as if they were from some far-off land. Why? Because they, did, they wanted to create a covenant. Just, let's just continue. But just, just get that in your picture. They're, so they're pretending this whole time to be someone they're not. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? So they're kind of, all, they're kind of clued in a little bit, you know, the, the, uh, the men of Israel. But then they said uh, to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country, lie, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, they, they knew what God had done in, in many other battles. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. It's funny how they kind of refer to him as just he, as if because these Gibeonites are basically heathens, they're pagans, and they're just another God, so they're just addressing him as he. Um, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country, pretending they're far off, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we, these are such actors. This, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. Come on. These wineskins were new, when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals, are, are, sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. It's just getting hilarious. So the men took some of their provisions, these are the Israelites, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. You see that right there? So the men, these are the men of Israel, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's where it starts, right there. Okay, and Joshua made peace with them, the Gibeonites, and made a covenant with them. 
to let them live and let the leaders and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So just a real, just an aside here. I don't know how much you know about covenants, but covenants in the Old Testament were huge. It's what, it's what really dictated. There was the Adamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, which is what they were under. And so covenants to the Lord. So there were covenants from God. There were covenants to the Lord. It was a serious issue, a serious matter. So covenants were not taken lightly. Clearly, there's a result of that that comes in chapter 21 here. So this is 400 years prior. This covenant was made, but let's continue. Let me just kind of finish this off. Chapter or Verse 16, at the end of three days, they had made a covenant with them. They heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. That's interesting. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, again the covenant, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. They knew they were had. They knew that they were taken. They knew that something happened where they were tricked. And so they were, there was grumbling, like, why did we make this covenant with these people that clearly have fooled us? Let's kind of continue along here. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. So a covenant was a big deal. Just to give you some understanding of, because we think, well, the covenant was 400 years ago, and what Saul did, he was just trying to clean house, and he, he just maybe forgot or he just didn't take, but the covenant was a serious thing. So in verse 20, it says, this, will, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be, up, lest wrath be upon us. There was, there was the fear right there of the, of the covenant, of breaking that covenant. They didn't want God's wrath on them because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood. So in other words, Israel took them in even though they were not part of Israel, they were, you know, pagans, but they brought them into their fold. They allowed them to, to cut the wood, to do the trim, to do all the wood cutting and, and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us, literally five to seven miles away. Now, therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered to Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. They were scared to death and they just wanted to be preserved. That's all. They knew what was coming had they not done this. And, be, and now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight do to, us, to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So that's the backstory, as Paul Harvey would say in the rest of the story. So even though they were deceived, 
into making this covenant. Nonetheless, there was a covenant that was made between Israel and the, and the Gibeonites. They were meant to be preserved. They were meant to be cutters of wood and drawers of water, and they were untouchable because of the covenant. So fast forward 400 years. Let's go back to Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 21 and continue on here. And let's pick it up, and again, let's just go back to, to verse 2 real quickly. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now it says for his zeal, and he very well might have been, maybe it appeared that he wanted to just go above and beyond and take out everybody he could, but... He did sin. It was a sin, and, and it wasn't just Saul because he had armies of people that did this. So it was not just a sin of Saul. It was a sin of the nation in a way. And so, hence, that's why there was something going down here. So, um, let's pick it. Let's see. Let's pick it back up. So now we know. Uh, so in verse 3, And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how may I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So at this point, David has a clear understanding of why the famine is occurring, what's going on, why, you know, and he has a full history because David knows, everyone kind of knew, um, but the Lord clearly laid it out for him. And so now he's, and when it talks here about the heritage of the Lord, that simply means Israel. So he's saying, how, how may uh, how may we bless Israel back to God's favor? Um, so he gives them the option at this point. And then let's continue on in, in verse 4. So the Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it us for, for us to put any man to death in Israel. Now, what he refers to there, any man, simply means anyone not outside of those responsible. Uh, so th that's sort of a, because it was a read on, we're like, wait, those religious Israelites are going to they're gonna do something too, but that's sort of what that means there. Uh, and he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that, we would, that should, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, the king said, I will give them. So, just to kind of recap a little bit, there's been famine, there's discipline, there's famine going on because of the discipline of what happened. David has the wisdom at this point. He's up in his years. He has the wisdom to bring in uh, the, who the Lord tells him to bring in and wants to make atonement. And so the atonement is going to be for some of Saul's direct offspring to be offered up to be killed as, as a sacrifice. And they did this sort of in their own pagan way because a lot of the things that we see in this are uh, not necessarily like they're going to well, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but, but they were doing as they thought they wanted things to be done. Uh, but David wanted to agree to this, to atone this. Um, so let's just kind of move forward with this. So they, they want 
seven people. Uh, so what David does is he says, I will give them. Uh, verse 7, this is interesting. It says, but the king spared Mephibosheth, which is interesting to me because a covenant was broken, but yet for, the, for the, what was going to be atoned here, David honored a covenant. And that covenant was with Jonathan and the house of Jonathan to spare Mephibosheth. And so I think that's interesting that even in this entire context of what's going to happen and what's going to occur, David still has the wherewithal and, and the, the, the kingly, the kingly uh, wisdom to hold fast to that covenant. And so I, it's, it's a, I think it's a, it's a neat thing because he loved Mephibosheth and he loved Jonathan. So it said, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. Now, don't get confused here. This is an, I don't, who could think there'd be two Mephibosheths? But there are. This is the Mephibosheth that's not Jonathan's son. Okay. So just to get a clear understanding, because it can get confusing a little bit. So there's two, uh, we have two direct sons of Saul. And then let's continue on here. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Edriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mathal... <laughs> let's try to get that. Yeah, right? Meholathite. Okay. So what we're looking at is David has selected um, seven of Saul's direct offspring. Okay. So it's two sons and then five grandchildren or grandsons. So that's, that's who they've assembled. That's who they've gotten together. Um, and again, some, again, we look at a text like this and, and trying to wade through this. Uh, so, so far we've had uh, discipline from the Lord. We've seen that in, in the famine. And then we have the sin that occurred because Saul broke that covenant, right? And so now we're looking at the atonement part of it. And the atonement, even though it's going to be done through kind of uh, ways that are sort of uh, not hedonistic, but pagan, uh, there's, it's still an atonement. It's what, it's what that needed to occur because that's what they said. It's all in the Lord's plan. So they, they have the seven here, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they, the Gibeonites, hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So just to give you a time frame here, a context, Probably uh, mid to late spring, from what I gathered, uh, is, is, is the time that they made this, atoned this sacrifice and they hung these guys, right? Um, which I think is, is interesting because you'll find that uh, as we move forward, the, the woman that stayed with them, the mother, was there a very long time. And, and to give you context, we'll, I'll, I'll talk about the time frame as we kind of move forward. So let me just back up one second. If you want to take a look there where it says they were put to death. So they did say that they were hang, they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And so as we continue on, you'll note that they remain there, probably until they begin to fall or do whatever, but there's someone that's going to be watching over. But it was, in, it was against Israel's uh, law to allow, allow anyone to hang overnight. Bodies were taken down before the evening fell. 
And so this is clearly, it shows that they're, it's actually kind of their own practice. So David is allowing, God is allowing them to sort of have this vengeance in a way, in their own way, but God uses it regardless because of his providence. So verse 10 says, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aviah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From, begin, from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. So that's a pretty long time. I, they're, they're thinking it was probably almost into the fall. So throughout the summer, a long time. So she basically camped out and was so dedicated because of their customs and their rituals. She put, had it set, pitched a tent there. And it's sort of, I looked up some pictures of this um, this area where it was, and it's kind of a, uh, it's called hill country, Gebeah. And so it was, it's sort of like there must have been either trees or some wood where, where it was, they could be seen from almost the side of a, a large hill, vertical hill. And so that's kind of, if you can picture, that's where they were, they were hung to be, you know. So she there was there camping out, dedicated to not letting the, the birds of prey, the carrion vultures, and the, whatever else would come along to uh, denigrate or to, to take apart the bodies or bones. She wanted things to occur naturally. So she kind of guarded this the whole time. So I'm just kind of creating this picture because later on we'll see that David is inspired by it. It's kind of gross, I know, but um, so it says here, let's kind of pick it up in 10 there. So Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell. Notice that the rain started falling, Okay. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Probably whatever comes at night, wolves and bad things. Verse 11 says, When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, because these were five of her sons, David went and took the bones of Saul. So he was in, let me just kind of pause right there. It's interesting that even looking at this, heathen culture, he was inspired to do something else now because of the dedication that this woman had to preservation of the bodies. Uh, now, it wasn't against the law of Moses to do any of these things. It's just that it's something triggered in him. And it doesn't really talk much about it anywhere else in the Bible. Um, like, there's no deep commentary on this. It's just word for word what it says. And he just saw what happened, and he decided to do something else. Things falling from the ceiling. Okay, <laughs> so let's continue on if we can. So in verse 12, verse 12 says, David went, because he noticed what David was told what happened. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of, his, of Saul's son, Jonathan, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of, of Bethshan, where the Philistine had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. I think we remember that from a few chapters back. And he brought up the bone, he brought up, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Interesting. Just, it's just a bizarre little story. It's, again, it's not, it's not 
in chronological order here. It's just something that was kind of placed at the end of Samuel here. It's a story, an account that happens sometime after Mephibosheth and uh, sometime before the curse. Um, but so David takes note of what occurred. Um, and it wasn't until that point, it did say that the rain sort of began, but the, the curse was lifted. The, the discipline was done when David actually finished the task, when the atonement was made. Uh, and it's just, I, and then, of course, that ends right there with that in that verse. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So it's an interesting story. Um, it begins with, you know, the discipline that Israel constantly was in and out of because they were constantly doing good things. They were constantly doing bad things. And when they were doing bad things, they were under discipline. Remembering, though, that discipline was for their own good. God sees the whole plan. He knew exactly where the nation was going. He knew what they would be up against, and he was refining as, as they went along. And it seemed that they seemed to bounce all over the place. Um, so the discipline, there was a sin, uh, there was the atonement, um, and the covenant was, was a huge thing. But I never quite really knew uh, how strong the covenants were that you know, men had made with each other or nations had made. But when it's done in the eyes of the Lord, clearly it was a, a, a big deal. Um, now we look back, now we, as we continue along here, verse 15, this is interesting. Let's just kind of, again, remember David's up in years, okay? So let's, let's kind of pick it up at 15. There was a war again between the Philistines and Israel. There's always wars. Now, this, I just want to pause real quickly. This little particular chapter, the section within this chapter, is an account of things that sort of occurred towards the end of David's life. They're not necessarily something that happened right after this, this event. This is, these are things that basically kind of happened. These are just accounts of sort of the end of the giants, so to speak. And so there's four giants that are killed here, and they're not necessarily all together. But let's just kind of walk through the narrative and see what it says. So there was a war again, between, again, again, notice it's always something with the Philistines, and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ish, Ish, Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, let me pause right there for a moment. These giants were typically from um, uh, the descendants of Canaan, so that's where they, they were left over. Some were... 9 to 12 feet tall, based on whatever version of cubit you, you want to look at. But they were massive. They were giants. And um, we obviously know the story of David and Goliath. And there's some other uh, talk in here of, of the same Goliath, but the, actually it's a little bit different. There's some scribal errors that occurred in there. But, um, but these were giants. They were left over, but they originated from the land of Canaan. Uh, so we all remember that story. Um, so David grew weary, it says here at the end of verse 15. He was up in years. And Ishbi Benabob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, I think that was about seven pounds, which is like a bag of sugar and then some. It's got like a heavy spearhead. When most spearheads were maybe 16, 18 ounces at the most, um, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. I think it's kind of funny in a way. The guys were like, you're done. That's it. You can't keep up. 
we don't want to keep trying to protect you because, and so he just, he, he never entered battle again at that point. And so I just find it interesting to see from the very beginning, David, the young shepherd boy that goes out and his claim to fame, so to speak, was to slay a giant, begins with that. And here at the end of his life, he almost gets taken out by one. But fortunately, fortunately Abishai comes in at the last minute and saved him. So it's almost like a complete circle there. Um, but this isn't quite the end of David's life, but I thought that was kind of interesting. But it's sort of funny in a way that the guys were like, you're done. Give me your armor back. You can't even keep up with us. So verse 18 says, after this, there was a war again. Uh, notice the word again. War with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hush, Hushathite, say that three times, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Again, another giant descendant. And there was again a war with the Philistines of Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Origen, Orgem, uh, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. These Again, so the bigger the guys, they, their, their, their weapons were massive. Um, just one blow from one of the giant, one of the, one of the uh, giant swords would probably uh, cut you in half or dismember you or at least crush you. So they were, and they were, they would swing these things like they were nothing, but they were just these massive people. So it's just an account of these, of the end of the, 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 the giants. Verse 20, and there was again a war at Gath, uh, when, when there were, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand. That's weird. And six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother struck him down. These four were descendants from the giants of Gath, uh, who were from Canaan, uh, and fell by the, hands, by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Uh, what an interesting little <laughs> footnote there, what an, you know, about talking about, I don't know why that's there, it's just there, but it just shows the end, the end of the giants and Israel's defeat of them. And again, with David starting his career that way and ending it by, uh, you know, kind of slipping by with, with one of them. Um, I, I think it's in that particular section. So it's almost like if you divide this chapter that we just read into the one account of the covenant being broken, the discipline, the atonement, the hanging, the burial, that's one section. And then there's this little small section. But in this little small section, I think it's really an interesting setup for the next chapter. And the next chapter, I don't want to get too far ahead, but the next chapter, and tonight might not go quite as long as, as, as normal, but because we might just briefly look at the next chapter, but the next chapter is basically Psalm 18. Now, it is 2 Samuel chapter 22, but it really aligns almost identically to, to Psalm 18. And it's basically David's song of deliverance. And it sort of spans his whole life of what the Lord did for, for him in, in all these battles and all, I mean, because he's an, he's an old man at this point. But if you look back up here, where was it? Chap verse 15 in chapter 21, just notice at the very end there, David went down together with servants and they fought against the Philistines and David grew weary. I think this is sort of the 
brings an, an end to his, his warrior days, uh, to his days as a military leader. And in, in this time where it's beginning to come to a close, we're only a few chapters away from the very end of, of 1 Samuel. And then we get into Kings, which will be occurring later on. And in Kings, there's going to be a new, a new king. And uh, in here, it's just such an, an interesting preface in a way or, or segue into this song of deliverance by David. He's at the end of his life. He looks back and he reflects on many things, um, uh, God's covenant with them. And I just think it's, it's neat. It, so in chapter 22, I'm just sitting here trying to decide how far to go because I, I don't want to get too far into it. Um, but at the same time, I want to, I may just give a brief, just a brief overview of David's Psalm. If you just want to write this down, or let me just talk about it. It's interesting when you look at Psalms, Psalms are interesting to study. They're, they're, some are very easy to teach on, and some are such a personal reflection from David that you almost just want to, just want to read it. And, 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 and notice in the Psalms, because I, I went through the Psalms about three years ago, and, and I was talking to Pastor Greg, and I said, I'm going to be going through the Psalms. He actually recommended the Psalms. Uh, just you know, going through a tough time in life, and, and he said, just journal the Psalms. Just go through the Psalms and, and journal and just rest in the Psalms. And I did. And I, I actually got also uh, Spurgeon's commentary called, called uh, the, the Treasury of David. It's a big three-book series, and it's a, it's a commentary of Spurgeon, of course, who's a brilliant writer and, and a man of God. Uh, so between that and just kind of going through the Psalms and just reading it for what it was, and looking at David's heart, and if you've never studied the Psalms, whether you're going through something difficult or not, I'd really recommend just digging into it. And you can almost dig into it anywhere, but it's interesting to start from the beginning and go through, because what it is, what it taught me anyway, and what I see a lot in, in a lot of people's writings about the Psalms, is it's simply a good understanding of, of a right relationship with God, and just that walking with God. And, and, and struggling with things and knowing that God is our salvation, but then crying out to him the next moment, but then going, you know, and the Psalms seem to resolve a lot. They'll start with, uh, I cried out and my enemies were trampling me. And then it'll go through a few verses and then, but you, O Lord, are my rock and my salvation. And it just shows the real inner workings. And we know now going through the Samuel, first and second Samuel, who was writing a lot of these psalms? It was David, and we know what he was going through. And then the psalms is simply like a diary in a way, just a reflection on what's occurring, what he went through, and what he was doing, and how he wrestled with, with the Lord on things, and how he gave praise to God on things. But he was very um, transparent. And so if there's ever a time in your life where you're, you're struggling with something or you're not quite sure, I mean, go to Psalm 37. And that's an amazing song. In fact, if you're sit there, sitting there going, have you seen the news? Have you seen what our government's doing lately? Go to Psalm 37. Start there. Or go to Psalm 1. And it talks about these things that will just wither and God will take care. God laughs at these things that are occurring. He's in control. And so for me, again, the Psalms, as they're written, which chapter 22 is very much like, it's almost identical if you look at Psalm 18, um, they're just a, 
a very transparent look at his heart, and it's really almost a good example of how we should relate in our relationship. Everybody talks about, do you have a relationship with the Lord? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, sure, but what does that look like? And I think this is a great example of the Psalms. I'd love to get into them at some point on what it looks like to relate to the Lord on a daily basis and to give Him praise and to give, give Him honor for things He's done. So I don't even know where I was going. Oh, I know where it's going. Okay. So just in, in, in David's, in this, in chapter 22 here, what we look at in this Psalm of Deliverance, this Song of Deliverance, I like to say, there's four divisions. It starts with, and I think it's really unique, it starts with how the Lord delivered David from his enemies. So it starts with that. That's chapter, verses 5 through 20. And then in chapter, or verses 21 through 28, it explains why the Lord delivered David from his enemies. So he starts with how the, the Lord did it. Then he describes why he did it. And then it, from 29 to 46 is the extent of the deliverance, going into detail about what was delivered. And then Verses 47 to 51, it's David's resolve to praise his deliverer. And it, it, the Psalms are beautiful in that way because they, they always start somewhere and they go somewhere. And there's, it starts with a conflict or it starts with something that's occurring. But again, like I said, it shows how he relates and how the Lord is his deliverer. You know, God, or, uh, Greg always talks about the Lord of my salvation and my rock and my deliverer and his steadfast love. It's all throughout the Psalms. And so, I love the Psalms, I'm just going to tell you right there. <laughs> so, I think we might do a little bit of a dive into 22 next week. But again, I would almost, if you want homework, I don't know if you've ever done homework for Bible study, but the homework would simply be, that's for you, Richard, homework would be, <laughs> it's just to read verse 20, read chapter 22, just read through it. It's, I'm not going to read the whole thing, and, and I don't even know if I could do a full study on it other than tell you exactly the types of things that occur there, but just to read it to, and we can come back next week and we're going to touch on that and then probably plow right into verse or chapter 23. Um, but I'd, I'd recommend you do that. But in conclusion tonight, and I always heard that when, when people say in conclusion, that means absolutely nothing. So um, I just want to review. I like to review some of the things we've talked about just to kind of reinforce some things in your mind. We talked about God's hand of deliverance, or I'm sorry, excuse me, let me go back, God's hand of discipline. We talked about discipline, um, how that even the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. There is still going to be discipline in your life. And when you have discipline in your life, count it all joy. Sometimes in life we just have trials because we do live in the world. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And so those are the things that are going to constantly be on attacking us, ourselves, the world we live in, and the devil. It's not always Satan walking around. He's not omnipresent. He's not going to be on everybody's bedside whispering things to him. It's very likely the world or very likely our flesh. So there are trials that we just simply go through. Not everything is God's discipline. Everything is in God's providence, and God wants to use everything we go through to learn to rely on him. Uh, but sometimes there is discipline in our lives. Do we have unconfessed sin? Are there things that, now I don't want to go back in time 400 years because we're under the new covenant. I just want to make that distinction. They were under the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, so to speak. But we're under the new covenant. And I think that's an amazing thing. Uh, so we don't have to, you know, there might be sins that we've committed in our past before we were saved. It does say that now that we're in Christ, that 1 John, 
chapter 1 says, uh, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's something that's ongoing and occurring, but I don't think we have to go back in our past and try to make right a covenant. We are under the new covenant. Um, so God does regard, how do we, so the question is, how do we regard discipline? Uh, do you trust that God knows what's best for us? Tonight we've talked about God's covenants. Um, again, I just, I, I, I'm grateful. Isn't it neat that we live in a time that God placed us in the world in a time in this span of several thousand years that we're in a time now that we get to live under the new covenant. We don't have to sacrifice animals or, or, or be under 300, 600 laws. Um, we get to be in the, the, we get to live now in this time. It's wonderful that we're under the new covenant. Uh, I think it's a, a blessing. Um, I, again, I, just, I like to write notes at the end of the things. Are we grateful for His, for, for his forgiveness of sin? Uh, and I, again, that we're not under that covenant. Um, atonement, something else we looked at is atonement. The atonement tonight was in a, in a hedonistic kind of way, or pagan, I should say. They did their thing. They hung them the way they wanted to. That was a sacrifice. They let them stay longer than the Israelite law would, would really allow, but it was under that circumstance that there was an atonement, and the Lord was satisfied. That's all that really matters because it was in His plan and His providence that it occurred. Um, so, I love Matthew Henry. I don't know if anybody's ever looked at any of Matthew Henry's. A theologian has great commentaries. Peg, you lit up. Good, yeah, big commentaries. Let me just read this real quickly. His, he had a commentary on on a particular part of this chapter. I'll read it slowly because it took me a while. To, I actually had to change a word in here because I didn't know what it meant. So I changed it for people like me. It said, "When God sent rain to water the earth, these bodies were buried." speaking of the bodies uh, of these seven men. For then it appeared, it appeared that God was called upon for the land. When justice is done on earth, vengeance from heaven ceases. God is pacified and is called upon for us through Christ, who was hanged on a tree so that, so, and so made a curse for us to do away with our guilt, though he himself was guiltless. It's just an interesting thing. I, I had to reread that several times, and you can go back and listen to it again. But it's just, it's, it was just an interesting contrast between what occurred then and what occurred forever for good. The Davidic covenant, the fact that David's line would continue on forever through Christ Jesus. He died on the cross. It's done. That's, that's the covenant that we're under. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, that's all I have for tonight. I, uh, I, I, I want to stop there. I, I, I was going to think about going into um, the next thing. We know that this was an, uh, that the last part of chapter 21 was a neat preface to David's uh, song of, of deliverance. But I would say it takes a time maybe just to go through that song of deliverance. We could talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then we'll pick it up probably part of that and then get into verse 23. And I think I'd like to try to, ch try to wrap this thing up, this chapter. I don't mean to be dismissive to wrap this thing up. It's the Word of God, sorry. Um, but by uh, well, one more, two more weeks. And then, again, we'll, we'll go through and uh, have some time off to celebrate Christmas and holidays. And then we'll come back for a wonderful uh, class on um, apologetics, which I'm excited about. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day.
Lord, we thank you for uh, those who are here tonight and those who are at home listening online. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the narrative of the Old Testament, Father, that was inspired by you. The stories here that we are, that we can, uh, we can look at, we can read, we can focus on, dwell on. Lord, we see your, uh, your attributes in these, Lord. We see things that occurred in the Old Testament, Lord, that we're, we're, we're grateful now to be under the new covenant, Father. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you go with each one of these people uh, as they leave here tonight. Keep them safe. Allow them safe travel, Lord, as we look forward to gathering again as a body on Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen.